My Family Thinks I'm Crazy, a podcast where I, your host, try to give you some tips on how you can explain all this weird, wild, crazy conspiracy stuff to the people you love most, because that's what I've been trying to do for the past 10 years with no success. I've been telling everybody that I give them in a shady, but every time I do, my family thinks I'm crazy. web has formed, spread, and tangled into the tattered woven fabric of the United States. Under the guise of Masonry and Mormonism, a new Lucifer emerged from the mass graves of the indigenous inhabitants of Turtle Island, an arcane group who practice archaic rituals and wield monolithic power. Cloaked in secrecy, they've pulled strings and saved face for the vast spreading wickedness that emanates from the center of modern power, whose institutions are peopled and staffed from the halls of ivy-laced nepotism, like an incestuous breed of parasites, spoiling the blood and bypassing the brain, overcoming its host from within. Here to extract this invader and intellectually dissect it for all to bear witness is Ryan Patrick Burns, host of Hero Paranormal and author of Shapeshifter Territory, The Utah UFO Ranch, and Skinwalkers and Beyond. He joins me, Mystic Mark, here on the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast to discuss Skull and Bones at the University of Utah. Thank you for tuning in and enjoy this conversation with Ryan Burns. A member brought a chapter of 322 or Skull and Bones to the University of Utah. And one of the very interesting hidden facts about that, there's a, there's a bunch, but it's, it's got a lot of ties to Mormonism and how the area surrounding the University of Utah, Salt Lake City and Utah in general is a super hot spot for the CIA to recruit. It's actually their number one recruiting grounds from an intelligence perspective. And as you know, the NSA has their primary national listening building in Utah as well, just down near what they call Silicon Slopes, which is where a bunch of the other data mining Silicon Valley type corporations have kind of relocated to. And a lot of people believe that is because of the NSA and the intelligence gathering mission. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast and returning 
to the show is our friend all the way out west in the wild barren deserts searching for skinwalker avoiding the attack from the shadowy black budget government ryan burns joining us here on the my family thinks i'm crazy podcast how you doing brother welcome to the show welcome back doing fantastic mark so good to talk to you again man how you been i've been great you know with uh everything that's gone on in the past year taking a closer look at skull and bones and the sort of architectural magic that's sort of built in stone and squaring the streets here in new haven and i'm starting to see the connections as they they being skull and bonesmen graduate and move on with their lives maybe settle in new places maybe start new colleges or even start new chapters of skull and bones and of course you're here today to fill me in on some information that i wasn't aware of until very recently that skull and bones has its own we'll say third chapter because i don't know if there's any in between but We'll call it the third chapter of Skull and Bones at the University of Utah. Fascinating. How'd you first? Uh, how'd you first find this out? I mean, obviously you're you're somewhat local, but uh, but is this something that you were aware of for a while? Did you recently find this out? I and mean, what what pushed put this on your desk, so to speak? So I am a graduate of the University of Utah, and the rumors have always existed in Salt Lake City, and uh, they go by a variety of names. However, uh, Bonesman is is a very common one that you hear, and it's it's always been a very hidden society. In fact, there's rumors as to where they gather. And we'll get to that. But I had a, a couple of very intrinsic connections to this. And one of them is a person I know on an individual level. And for all intents and purposes, they had more or less a breakdown during the initiation process, uh, getting initiated into the 322 chapter at the University of Utah. So bad, in fact, that they had to seek psychiatric attention and the University of Utah actually paid for that therapy. So it sort of shows the paths of power, much like in the Ivy League at Yale, the way that 322 or the Order of Skull and Bones sort of pulls the strings to the university itself, the same seems to be at least intrinsically possible here in Utah. Now, sounds like the school spent a great deal of money for this particular person who uh, had a, let's say, unplanned for reaction to what is like a standard initiation ritual, right? Am I getting that right? Yeah, it was 
And, you know, it depends on who you talk to in the order, but it seems as if the, there's fascinating tales as far as the confi confidentiality and the actual initiation processes. I guess there's a very vivid uh, and sometimes dark uh, initiation process, which includes a variety of different psychological measures meant to force or break the initiate's mind in order for them to completely and wholly, almost in an MK Ultra way, accept the order, make sacrifices to the order, and basically remember that when the order comes knocking, uh, you answer, no matter where it is you end up in life. And this individual is a very prominent business figure now, um, without mentioning names. Uh, they work in the communications field uh, for a very major company, so um, has become quite an authority. And it does seem as if there's a dark side to the initiation process uh, that is very secret, and uh, it did its job. It definitely broke it broke this person in a way that they needed actual therapy. What really blew me away is the list of people that in my research I have found are actually bonesmen and at the University of Utah. And that list is far and wide. Um, they include big names, big names of people that I, you know, I've been in their homes and people that are, you know, in extreme positions of power that it just blows my mind. Uh, the person that is most mind-blowing, in my opinion, is the current president of the LDS Church, or the Mormon Church, which is Russell, Russell M. Nelson. And this is pretty mind-blowing because he is uh, a Skull and Bones member, and he's yet also in a position of religious power, which seems interesting. And uh, we have other very um, prominent people in positions of power, such as Bob Bennett. And he's the one that I've been in his home, my uh, high school sweetheart. And I would go over there. She was best friends with his daughters. And so we'd go over there often. And I've met the man, very, very powerful individual. But it's pretty wild and pretty crazy that the list of members is uh well much much like much like at yale they're just the cream of the crop in every, in every aspect mm. yeah and this is to be expected when you know their playbook i mean if you think about it their goal is control right there's many goals that lead to that ultimate goal but it seems that their ultimate goal is control and uh religion is a very uh, effective way of controlling a large group of people. We have these rebels, these Mormons, these, you know, outliers who go out and they, they found this, you know, huge state of, uh, I forget the actual name of it. You might know the name that they gave their, uh, that land they claimed out there in the West, Zion, which comes into play, that's because mm -hmm. they are Zionists, much like the much like the uh, Skull and Bones Order, the Brotherhood of Death, as it's as it's known, and 
you know, as I've done research, I'm sure as you have, what I'm finding out is we, what we have connecting all of these facets we are discussing today is kind of a universal brotherhood of death mm. with roots dating back to Jewish messianic movement known as um, Sabbatism. Um, it is a, a movement that rocked the very foundations of Judaism and really theology in general. I mean, to be extremely honest and clear, I'm, I'm not talking about Moses or Jesus or John the Baptist. It's a guy named Shabbatai Tzi, or better known as Sabati Zevi, who was a self-proclaimed Messiah. And he, with the help of his buddy or associate, Nathan of Gaza, they, they started this movement, which was, for all intents and purposes, a satanic Kabbalistic movement, or at least a sect of satanic Kabbalistic people came or sprung forth from this movement. And as well as a bunch of other sects, but for the sake of time, we'll just kind of concentrate on the darkest sect, which is the one we're talking about, which erupted from this like unique situation, the sect of basically Sabbatan Frankists. So Sabbatai Zevi was a guy that was born uh, in Turkey. Um, it's now the city of Izmir, I believe. And he was born on this ominous day, the ninth day of the month of Av on the Hebrew calendar, which is kind of the same day the first temple of God was destroyed by the Babylonians mm. and just a dark day in general. And what's weird is it's, it's even more infamous now that it's his birthday because Zevi deeply studied Kabbalah or Jewish mysticism and became quickly became a master of it in his early twenties. He kind of said, I'm the Messiah. And he was captured by the Ottoman Empire for being just a real pain in their ass. And they gave him two options. Um, on October 16th, 1666, a lot of sixes there, if you're into numerology. Um, October 16th, 1666, his ultimatum was basically, dude, you have to convert to Islam or die. And a lot of people were taking him serious that he was the Messiah. So this is where the Sabbatian Frankists, who is that darker sect I'm talking about, come into play. And this is where they learn to become sort of chameleons of religion, or in other words, convert to any religion, which is most beneficial to them at the moment. This is why like the Rothschilds, the Rockefellers, and other main Illuminati families, many believe there's 13 and there was. Um, from people I've talked to, that number's grown to 15 or 17, depending on who you talk to. And uh, Anyway, these families assume the religion of the culture and the geographic area they are in. So in Utah, that is Mormonism or the Latter-day Saints. And depending on where you find these people in, of power, they will, they will assume whatever's convenient. And they believe in this... This thing called Ein Sof, which is kind of understood as God prior to any self-manifestation. So um, it's like the production of the spiritual realm that comes from Solomon and his temple. And the term is basically the endless one, which is super creepy. It personifies limitless power. So uh, a, they believe in a primal void that exists between good and evil. 
as many know it, the center path. And that means that the left path and the right path are both on the table. You can use whatever you want. All the tools are yours. And as you know, um, we see this in intelligence communities. So uh, the Mossad, for example, will do anything it needs to do to ensure Israel's existence. And even the word Israel, you know, is for Isis, Ra for the Egyptian god, and El, the old or the ancient god, the trinity of power in the minds of these dark sects. And most other countries and intelligence operations, they just kind of, you know, they have limits. They'll, they'll stop at some point. But Mossad will stop at absolutely nothing, and neither will the CIA. And it's because they've been infiltrated by this very sect, and they perceive limitless power. So the mission of the CIA, for example, is sort of be sort of to be the central repository of intelligence, and then report to the what they call the decision makers, or we're back to these these families of power. And these original 13 families, which are now more like 15, or depending on who you talk to, up to maybe 17, they are basically the new world order. That's what they're pushing. And they, they hide under a cover of spiritual enlightenment, you know, love the world, love earth, Gaia, all, all this stuff. They're the ones that are collecting all the carbon credits. And they've always been collecting information. And when it comes to the Latter-day Saints or the Mormons, um, they, they, they're very deeply involved in intelligence. And I say that because the CIA heavily recruits from Utah. And that's specifically because Mormon missionaries come back from their mission. They're young. They've been to other countries. They're familiar with basically the world. Uh, they're at any given time, there's about 80,000 of them in different countries gathering information and coming back, speaking multiple languages. They're basically prime for the picking uh, to get enlisted in the intelligence operations of this country. Uh, add to that their ability to keep secrets. Um, the Latter-day Saints or the Mormon Church, as you want, as people call it, it has many secret ceremonies, mostly Freemasonic in nature, that take place on temple grounds. These are things that oaths are made to never speak of. And so secrecy has been read into them. It's sort of baked in. They were brought up that way. And uh, going back to like Brown Brothers Harriman, particular, that name Harriman will come into play later with connections between Mormonism, the CIA, and Skull and Bones. Many of these families uh, have been known to interbreed, whether it be through polygamy or not. And that's not just in Utah, just to avoid any, you know, mistakes here. Because, you know, the belief is these, these individuals believe that outside soul sparks, I guess, from the profane will mess up the um, ingredients, if you want to speak of their progeny that way. I mean, even... The founder of the Bavarian Illuminati, Adam Weissop, got his sister-in-law pregnant, and he was the founder of the Bavarian sect of the Illuminati, and the original cha German chapter of the Brotherhood of Death. And I really like that you said the third chapter earlier, because you definitely know what you're talking about. That's obvious. So fast forward, um, members in the second chapter in the United States, Order 322, they 
also have to make sacrifices to the society, as they call it, or the order. And they're threatened with blackmail. So there's, you know, 100% loyalty there. It's a lot like what you find in Utah. It just works. And a lot of the, interestingly, a lot of the most important information having to do with a lot of this in Utah is kept in a repository in a town called Orderville. So that's a very strange coincidence. But all the connections we're about to talk about are most easily kind of summed up as the invisible empire. And it that's exactly what it is. It's a it's like a modern and edgy catchphrase or blanket term. But, you know, it is essentially the Illuminati, the age old, you know, secret societies, the Freemasons, the Knights Templar, uh, Knights of Malta, Ancient Order of the Rose Cross and countless others. So um, there's a lot of more public, not so secret facade religions among which, in my opinion, are, you know, some are in Utah and the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Let me not be a hypocrite here because what they believe is very similar to great societies that I've become aware of. And uh, I in no way want my words to be seen as any form of attack against them, as it's more of a transfer of valuable information. I just wish to convey the info. So, um, But there is a secret kingdom, according to some of these beliefs, theologies, and religions. And I'm not alone in calling it that. And the New World Order is kind of this blanket movement in partnership with the CIA, the Mossad, the Illuminati bloodline families, and they all have the same essential goal. So I don't know where we want to jump off from there. What's fascinating, you know, to me particularly, and maybe this just is due to primarily I've focused on the early history of Yale University prior to skull and bones but what's fascinating is um a the connection between mormonism and new england and everything that was going on that yale was uh, very much a part of uh that birthed the whole mormonism movement to begin with and then b uh, frankism which in itself is somewhat similar to the calvinist evangelical mindset uh that basically birthed Yale University. Uh, they were later sort of reformed uh, by the Anglican missionaries who, uh, you know, probably gave Yale its more British reputation because it has a British Museum of Art and not an American Museum of Art. Uh, they do have an art gallery, but I've always found it uh, obvious that Yale has its sort of feet in both countries you know it, it it clearly recognizes its uh lineage to oxford cambridge and then obviously harvard but uh there seems to be with these elite groups who find themselves in these you know upper echelon intelligentsia circles there's this preponderance of uh we are the chosen people, this sort of idea. And the Calvinists even believed that God specifically chose certain people to go to heaven, even if that meant that they did devilish or evil acts in their lifetime. 
uh, if it was ordained by God, they would still make their way to heaven. It kind of reminds me of what, at least what I'm reading here with the Frankists, where they say they uh, have some antinomianistic ideas, which is essentially just a biblical term for uh, going against the morals of the Bible. Um, so anytime someone's like, oh yeah, we're going to, we're going to teach Jesus's teachings, but not this part, you know, that, that could be construed as an anti-nomiastic, uh, cult or, or, you know, offshoot of Christianity. And that's exactly what, uh, Frankism is. It even talks about, uh, Sabbateans being involved in orgies and, uh, fast and feast days we just uh, had the feast of fools actually take place this month but uh but yeah it seems like overall the connection ideologically is in this religious extremism would you agree with that ryan oh my gosh absolutely and the, I mean, it's not, I hate to pick on any religion. Like you mentioned, I mean, the Jehovah's witnesses are not exempt. The Vatican is not exempt. The um, Anglican church. In fact, when looking at like the Vatican or London or even the temple grounds in Salt Lake city, Utah, these are areas that for all intents and purposes are like little compounds inside of another state and they have their own rules and laws and security. And, you know, Zion, as it's called, that's what that's what the prophets called Salt Lake City when they saw it from the mountaintop coming down Immigration Canyon with uh, Father Escalante and Dominguez. They said, we're here. Um, they saw what they saw, and that's where they put the temple grounds. They are not the same as the rest of the area. These are much like the Vatican or London where, you know, and even Washington, D.C., where you have, and that this is the connection, where you have something exempt from the area it is around, and it is its own focus of power. And, you know, these secret origins of the skull and bones, it's important when understanding and making the connections to the 322 chapter at the University of Utah, which was added in 1910, that the chapter of the Skull and Bones at Yale University, which I think was founded in 1832, was a German organization. If you look at the temple in Salt Lake City, it is a very German kind of Disney-ish castle-looking structure. But this makes sense because the original chapter, the German organization, worshipped Eulohia, the goddess, and they plot... Um, underground conspiracies to dominate the world as we know it in all the sects and this is evident in a lot of the literature of all of these organizations including um, the endowments uh, the main rituals as well as the priesthood rituals of mormonism they are for most part freemasonic and that's that's not a mistake um there, there was a lot of, uh, well, Joseph Smith embraced and incorporated Freemasonry into the religion. And Joseph Smith is like the original prophet. And he virtually made every male Mormon in the area back when they were in Nauvoo, which was their second encampment, the, the first Zion, if you will, 
um, he made basically every male Mormon in the area a Freemason. So it, it, they openly embraced Freemasonry. And in fact, the main lodge of Freemasonry was not happy because of the way Joseph Smith and his associate, Oliver Codry became Freemasons. They elevated one another very quickly. In other words, they would, they would rise to the 33rd degree of Freemasonry within a matter of days, a process which usually takes years. And therefore, all or most became Grand Masons very quickly. So when the Grand Lodge in Illinois, where Nauvoo was located, became aware, they weren't happy about it. They, 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 they knew that a number of their signs and symbols and handshakes and virtually all or most of these were absorbed into these temple ceremonies. So we have connections. Um, I think I mentioned the lineage. A, a big thing in the Latter-day Saints is genealogy. They're really big about family bloodlines. You know, this is where all of these major companies like Ancestry.com and what's the other one? 23andMe. Right. You know, these these major uh, genealogical, more data-driven companies are based. And they're, they're mostly based in Salt Lake City, Utah, because bloodlines are a huge deal. So um, <clears throat> going back to the, the Freemasonic embracement by Joseph Smith, he, he basically kind of amassed his own military unit for this town in Nauvoo. And there was about almost 3,000 men in this militia. And they frightened people because it was roughly a, like a third of the U.S. Army at that point. It was a pretty big group of guys with arms. And he called them the Nauvoo Legion. And they secretly practiced polygamy at that point. But... The word was getting out. So Joseph Smith was looking for like a powerful oath. Um, if you follow the Rothschilds, this is known as the Jewish oath. Or, But anyway, it's not to make a long story longer. Just a way to bond these men to not talk about the things that they were taking part in. And they, they found that Freemasonry was a key way to do this. So... Uh, going back to the Yale connections, there is someone who obviously we have Uli Ulihu Yale, who that the, the, the place was named after. However, he wrote a letter to someone who was kind of the forefather of the CIA, if you want to call it, or one of our first spies, which was Nathan Hale. And Nathan Hale was basically a member of Yale's class of uh, 1773, I think. And he served as a revolutionary war soldier. He eventually volunteered to be a spy for George Washington. And he disguised himself as a schoolmaster. He was obviously recognized and arrested behind enemy lines. And in his shoes, he had all of his orders, his papers, and among those, his Yale diploma. So before being executed, he uttered, uh, I probably massacre this, but I think it was my only regret is that I have but one life to lose for my country, which kind of brings us to Nathan Hale's family and their connections to Mormonism and the genealogy of the descendants of Thomas Hale of Watton, England and Newbury, Massachusetts, these lines of the family tree. So 
uh, Bishop Jonathan Harriman Hale, and there's that Harriman name again, and family, who basically came to Utah with the main pioneer wagons of, I think it was like 1848 or 1850. They had a very prominent and paramount long line of judges, lawyers, prominent social figures in government and community in Salt Lake City, including the University of Utah. So there's more connections. And in fact, I'm really close friends with some of the Hale and Crandall grandchildren. I grew up with them in school and went to school with them. Uh, amazing people for sure. But the bottom line is this explains why some of the skull and bones threads of American history are included also in Utah. So I don't know, you know, where we want to go. If we want to go more the Yale route or more the university of Utah route. I'd like to go down both routes. Where do you think we should start? Um, let's go down the, I I think the descendants, um, it's pretty interesting. You know, we have Nathan Hale, the first spy pretty much of this country with descendants living in Utah, um, his connection to Yale university. We have skull and bones, kind of the puppet masters behind Yale university. And then this far-fetched idea that there is probably the most secretive chapter of the skull and bones at the university of utah because it's really hard to dig into this in fact the bonesmen at the university of utah they have no qualms about you know going to meetings and and talking to people in public however they wear masks and robes with full hoods i mean they're not joking they're like they do not want you to know who they are and something even more impressive is that they are secretly practicing many of the same initiations which the Brotherhood of Death or Order of 3G2 Skull and Bones at Yale are practicing. However, I would argue that they are even more conservative. As we know, the order at Yale has kind of, due to its power and leverage, had to incorporate... the addition of female members, um, the addition of LGBTQ, you know, different trans members as well. And it's, uh, it's very, it's, it's turned into something that that's more difficult to hide within their, their tomb or the, you know, the secret location or the hidden place where I know you've visited uh, it's it that the secrets there are harder to hide at Yale than they are at the University of Utah. Mm. I've, so, I've walked so, by. Let's yeah. be clear. I haven't visited. <laughs> <laughs> Never invited as a guest. But yeah, I I have walked by. I've snooped around. But uh, yeah, it's it's really um, it's really murky area. A lot of skull and bones men end up founding colleges and. You know, I never put much attention to what seemed like uh, other iterations of Skull and Bones because I wasn't sure if they were merely uh, copycats or if they were some sort of like, um, we'll say, uh, offshoots that aren't, you know, totally franchised. Like they're just sort of like uh, 
maybe unwarranted offshoots, maybe somebody <laughs> graduates from Skull and Bones, becomes a professor at a school, and then decides to, you know, organize the students into doing this to to feel a little bit of that power he felt at school. I, again, maybe that's my, you know, uh, overbearing skepticism uh, imposing itself, but I didn't immediately follow any of those uh, sources a, because of that, and then B, like you mentioned, there's not a lot of information about these, um, you know, other Skull and Bones groups. You know, even in Yale itself, there are 40 secret societies, so it's easy to uh, look at those and spend time looking at those as well and, and kind of forget about Skull and Bones temporarily, uh, but it does, they are the most infamous, and they do have... Uh, sort of other groups they're affiliated with amongst the Yale secret societies. So it wouldn't surprise me uh, that they have a network of secret societies uh, throughout the college system, you know, maybe certain groups that they're in alignment with and maybe even uh, groups that are just, you know, third, fourth, fifth chapters like this one potentially is. Yeah, it's, it's very, very, very hidden. And they've amassed, in my opinion, um, a great fortune uh, being so secretive because it, it's a little bit different. Unlike unlike members of more, m- most other societies, uh, it's rumored that Bonesmen pay no dues, at least not monthly, but they they receive a letter from the society or the society treasurer that requests them to make quote unquote voluntary contributions. And these voluntary contributions are usually percentages that have been rumored anywhere from the 10% up. And so that's so they don't forget where they came from because that's why they are where they are at. And now if, if a bonesman is a complete mess and, and accomplishes nothing in life, uh, purportedly they're also somewhat maintained and so that they're never homeless or on the street. So that's, that's kind of an interesting aspect, but you know, this kind of all goes, goes back to Elihu Yale, who, I mean, he served with the British East India company as a privateer. And that's where a lot of the pirate, uh, motif of the Jolly Roger and, and the, the Skull and Bones comes from, as well as Bavaria and the original Brotherhood of Death. But he amassed a great fortune from trade, and he rose ranks super quickly and donated a ton philanthropically to the school, which was later known as Yale. And moving forward a bit, the other really interesting part of this organization and its overall perspective is that they disguise themselves often. And this is kind of where the intelligence community comes in, where they are very, they can be chameleons wherever they're at, not only countries, but societies, religions. they're, They're basically, they've read the book of the masters and they know how to be who they need to be to get the information to take back to their patriarchs and uh, sort of report for duty. So it's a different kind of, uh, it's a different kind of spirituality, a real fellowship or a brotherhood 
where they know that if they, and many are, are blackmailed, where they know that if they report back in their search for information, that they've, they've really become sort of a cult of intelligence. And uh, they do worship a lot of the imagery of the ancient gods. So I believe we're dealing with different tentacles of the same octopus of control that started with the, the original messianic, char messianic character um, in Turkey. And the Frankists and Sabbatists have uh, fully kind of incorporated everything into this huge brotherhood of death. In fact, the Nazis, as we know them, for all intents and purposes, again, not to go off the German thing too much, but I mean, Prince Philip was a Nazi for all intents and purposes. The Windsors are actually German and changed their name to not draw attention to this fact, in my opinion. And there's threads of this tool society, which again has roots in the same brotherhood of death and the same satanic Kabbalistic theology. The dual society is sort of the basis or partial basis, if not the main root, taproot for the Nazis and where that all began. And it kind of brings us back to the Jewish roots and how Sabbatists were, I mean, this, this was a real big deal that kind of shook the foundations of everything in the 1600s with this guy saying, I am the Messiah. Uh, and I can use all of the tools at my disposal. And he did, including, you know, switching to Islam in secret. I mean, just as a facade, when in reality, continuing his uh, Jewish mysticism and Kabbalah on the side. So it, it's a really interesting tale of espionage ever since the beginning. Yeah. Yeah. I have a bunch of questions. Uh, there's definitely a lot of what you're saying that uh, I can corroborate through my research, but a few things that uh, not that I haven't been able to corroborate, but they're just areas that I haven't turned my attention to uh, yet. But I will say that Ezra Stile, seventh president of Yale, he is painted with a uh, depiction of the Tetragrammaton behind him. He's said to have studied Kabbalah with one of the first rabbis to ever visit the colonies. And uh, and yeah, Sabbatean uh, Frankus would have certainly been uh, around, possibly in Germany, when the uh, William Huntington Russell and Alfonso Taft, founders of Skull and Bones, had their... Uh, summer or college semester in Germany. This was the the semester where, or summer where they were inspired by what whatever group they had joined uh, to go back to Yale the next semester and start Skull and Bones. So I've often wondered, you know, which group is that? You hear so much about the Illuminati in that part of the world. And although a lot of people say, well, Adam Weissop's Illuminati never amounted to anything, uh, I've found uh, that that's not the case. There's plenty of groups that merely uh, changed their names or adapted that philosophy uh, towards their goals. And, and, the Sabbatean Frankus certainly uh, could be a part of that in a more religious extremist iteration of it. And, and to bring that angle back in, 
you mentioned um, how there's this connection between espionage and the Mormon church in Utah and Skull and Bones. Well, absolutely. I found that Yale from the beginning, even before Nathan Hale, even before Skull and Bones, they uh, were participating in the Stockbridge Missionary School, one of the first missionary schools in the colonies. And uh, missionary work is essentially espionage. I mean, it's, it's religious espionage. It's, you know, sending people out to a certain area, converting their, their language to a language you can understand, and then using that knowledge to convert them to the religious political mindset that you are pushing, right? This is the goal of the missionary. It's, it's never in that context. It's always in the context of, oh, well, we want to teach you the loving word of Jesus and save you from uh, being a savage burning in hell, you know, this sort of, <laughs> uh, <laughs> sort of racist notion at the root. And, and definitely, again, you know, no offense to anyone who's religious out there, but, you know, if you've ever had a Jehovah Witness knock at your door or anything of that sort, I'm sure the Mormons uh, have their own versions of that when you visit Salt Lake City, um, you know, it doesn't feel comfortable, right? And I'm, I'm a modern person who's not exactly, uh, I didn't grow up in a super Christian environment. So maybe if that was the case for me, I, I wouldn't be so turned off by uh, a missionary. But for whatever reason, it's a socially accepted uh, role and you can't avoid, you can't separate it from espionage. When you look at it historically, missionaries have always served a political role, not a religious role. I mean, maybe in their mind they're serving a religious role, but it's hard to argue the political benefit of having uh, missionaries. So I do want to ask you some questions, though, um, before I before I do yeah, that. Man. If you want to respond to anything I just said, go for it. I'm, I just totally i am stoked that you mentioned the Tetragrammaton because... Um, Speaking of Zevi, uh, Sabbatai Zevi, he was wild. He would, he would, he would go to the, basically go to the synagogue and with an ax break into the synagogues when they were locked and in the middle of rituals. And he was known to pronounce the Tetragrammaton in Hebrew, an act which was only allowed to high priests and he was supposedly able to pronounce the tetragrammaton in the true name of god and claim to have all of the knowledge but it was in very um kind of like lucid segments of time and then he would kind of come unglued and retreat and then come back and be like all knowing and then re you know very crazy so i'm glad that you mentioned the tetragrammaton and yeah getting back to the harriman family line and brown brothers harriman and uh, connections to Bishop Jonathan Harriman Hale with the pioneer wagons. But back to the Brown brother Harriman, I mean, we know for a fact that this, this, this company in particular funded the majority of the Nazi movement. And right. that that's another thing the, that they were able to act as if they were one thing while pretending to be another. And this, this is a, this is a theme that just comes cyclically over and over again. And, 
it it seems completely unreasonable and out of place when you have, for example, in more modern times with satanic ritual abuse, you have uh, these cases of SRA, and typically the people who are being quote unquote framed for this are are people that are involved, usually in high positions of either society, churches, or politics. And so I, I don't I don't know that that's necessarily by chance. But anyway, yeah, let's move on. Mm. Yeah, very uh, very controversial subjects. You know, this uh, it does seem to be wrapped into this nexus. You know, this this is one of their methodologies, as you mentioned, uh, breaking down the the doors of the synagogue to you know pronounce this great heresy. This sounds very Crowleyan to me, you know, this sort of getting off on taboo breaking. This seems to be a part of how they've, they being, you know, whichever cult is currently at the top of the secret hierarchy, you know, it seems like that's a part of their plan is to sort of shatter taboos, shatter the traditional culture and bring in this... uh, this new consciousness, right? And uh, Skull and Bones seems to be a part of this agenda, almost in a, a more religious extremist iteration of it in the sense that they have this obsession with the end times, with the Armageddon, with uh, rebuilding the Temple of Solomon, in other words, right? And uh, I'm curious, you mentioned before, you know, the, the who they worship and and some of their rituals how much have you learned about uh skull and bones and their inner workings because as far as i've found there isn't much information uh explicitly about their inner workings but you can kind of infer possibly what um what their their ideology is it seems like mithraism is uh, a part of this somehow. Uh, I could be wrong, but that's my best guess. I'm curious what you found. I would say that, yes, the the heads of these um, powerful families, depending on you know which ones you want to mention, the the leading Sabbateans like the Rothschilds, um, they definitely uh, lean towards these ancient religions that were hidden in secret. And for example, I mean, they, they now own 80% of the land in Israel. Um, according to the, a recent thing I read from a Jewish historian. So it's not, it's not odd that comparing what happens in Israel today, which is sort of their pet project, right? In the way that it deals with the Palestinians is what they want in an overall one world, new world government. And basically, if you're not in, you're out, right? So if you're not living within Israel, then you're out and you're treated literally like dogs. And um, just the word, this is not, this is really not Jewish. It's more like a crypto Jewish mentality because as i mentioned this this leaning towards the ancient gods and uh isis ra 
and L in particular, that's where the uh, literally is Ra L. This is sort of, you know, uh, the the basis for the Holy Trinity as most of us know it. And I think Mithraism, to not escape your question, definitely comes into play when you learn about the religion and how they do what is most beneficial to them at the moment and are able to assume cultures, geographic areas, religions of others in public, yet in secret, they are something very different. Uh, something, again, that reminds me of many of the secretive colonies along the East Coast, Arden, Delaware, Rose Valley, areas where people will claim to be something on the outside, yet on the inside, you know, just just go by at any satanic, satanic holiday at these estates and there's something going on. So um, I, I think that these lines are, are you know, it, it's easy to get them blurred when when you're looking from the outside in but from people whom i've spoken with looking from the inside out it's a very easy thing to do to uh confuse and blur the lines between reality of what's going on and what mm. they seem to be perceived as well and i agree with you 100% my my conflict is with that term satanism right because we have it seems some very charged opinions around that topic, you know, and it makes it hard to uh, decipher where people are earnestly reporting on fact and, and where people are maybe uh, conflating their religious views for uh, reality. And and again, I, I'm kind of stuck in the middle because I can see uh, reasons for both being true, uh, although I, I tend to to be more skeptical of, of any sort of mainstream religion, I do see where uh, people who argue from that point of view have uh, some, some credence lent to their argument when they say there's this sort of organized evil. And, and it's just, you know, when you have all of these um, sort of mock Satanists who just do it for the uh, sort of edginess that it helps them feel, um, you know, it definitely makes it seem confusing. Now, again, I don't doubt that there's something going on. I mean, we look at these really heinous crimes in upper echelon political circles, the Franklin scandal. I mean, even Pizzagate, although that was kind of um, treated like a, a mockery in the media, you know, there, there was a lot going on with that case that, you know, still needs to be uh, figured out. But either way, do you think that we have a case of like an organized Satanism that's just going by different names and and maybe we can kind of glimpse what satanism is by looking at adjacent occult arts like uh 
the Kabbalah or maybe, um, you know, certain pagan rituals or certain uh, Hindu, you know, ancient practices? Like, is it a is it a sort of hodgepodge or is it something that we just haven't seen because it's it's that secret and, and they just don't publish the true information about this kind of stuff. I mean, w- what are your thoughts on, on Satanism? I guess I'm really asking is like, is it as organized as some of our conspiracy peers say it is? Great question, man. And I agree with you. It's not the, uh, Satanism. Satanism is just as widespread and convoluted and disturbingly confusing as you know, other religions in that it isn't the ones like Anton LaVey and the Church of Satan that you have to agree and believe are the pinnacle or the focus of the movement. It's far from that, in my opinion. Mm. In fact, those are the designated decoys, in my opinion. And in fact, the movement, which, you know, like the Frankist movement, seeks secret knowledge or gnosis the act of hidden realms or aspects of existence. Uh, that is what you have to worry about. The, the scandalously, you know, traditional religions of ancient gods where we have things popping up, um, such as blood atonement, which is another of the cornerstones of the LDS church and Mormonism really, um, something that is very kept secret is this blood atonement, which is a very secretive doctrine, but it was carried out by, at least in this particular religion, by what is known as the Danites. Um, Every religion has, you know, those guys, whether it's uh, Catholicism or Judaism there's always those guys who are basically the assassins or the, the Ashashin of the um, families in charge or the patriarchs of knowledge. And, you know, in Western esotericism, it's, it's, it's tough because you have these, the prominent figures who nobody would ever believe. And then the charlatans who everybody believes. So ideologically it's, it's very strange when you have this, Western form of Kabbalah syncretizing materialism and folklore and quasi enlightenment and rationalism, especially in the initiation processes to these secret societies and uh, fraternal organizations, brotherhoods, for lack of a better word, it is quite literally usually very open to different belief systems as you are initiated. You don't have to be Jewish or Christian or Muslim. In fact, you just have to be open to a different power to be initiated. And I think that that is where it most closely resembles a satanic esoteric theology with just breaking those individuals with myth mystic truths where they half understand that they can come into it with whatever they want as long as they open themselves to uh, to an initiatic secret clustered around the brotherhood and agreeing that there is something more important than all of them, 
that they will serve. And I think that doesn't come forth until they're much higher in the degrees uh, than the initiate. So for example, I mean, and like I said, I can't pick on any religion in particular, but since we're talking about Skull and Bones chapter in Utah, I'll just use that as an example. But in the Latter-day Saints religion, there are three heavens, three levels of heaven, again, or three degrees of heaven. And you don't get to the third degree or the most exalted until you have been initiated into all of the instructions uh, below those. So you, you, you don't understand what's really going on, whether it be in these secret societies or these religions or any of these uh, theological death cults or power organizations, whether, whether you're looking more even on a business front. You know, you don't understand what's really happening at the top floor when you're sitting at the water cooler on the bottom floor. You, you, you have to work your way up to the top floor and you realize that it's crazy and usually not even remotely what you imagined when you were at the bottom floor talking with other employees around the water cooler. You know, when you're in that CEO's office at the top floor, you realize there's something very different going on and, and set apart from the rest of the levels in the building. Yeah, that's the disturbing part. And, you know, once you've taken that oath, it's, uh, it's, it's, I don't know, it's probably unlikely that people are willing to uh, go backwards, so to speak. And, you know, there have been plenty of books that have been written by people who, uh, let's say, were a part of, different groups and they kind of expose the the secrets do you think that that there are any secrets left that uh that are still you know unpublished i mean i i think so i i just i wonder you know when it comes to this kind of stuff like uh <laughs> if yale university with all their money and rare books if they have some kind of uh you know, satanic Bible, a true satanic Bible of some kind or, or something like that, you know, I mean, geez, it's, it, 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 have you ever heard of the Gigas Codex? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That comes to mind when I think of, uh, <laughs> Bibles that have been forgotten about. Yeah. And there is, um, like, as you know, I'm sure, you know, there's like a Bonesman Bible and there are, in my opinion, I a hundred percent I, I believe that dark, occult, family lines, a, a lot of this has to do with genealogy, have been the, the, these drivers of ultra-Zionism, if you want to call it that, or hidden hand theologies. And, you know, it's I, I don't think it's shocking at all that the word satanic comes up, especially when talking about different occultists such as uh, Jacob Frank or Sabbatian Frankism in general. I mean, Mayor Amstel Rothschild and uh, the uh, Jesuit-educated Jew Adam Weissop, you know, who later became a Protestant, these people switch gears and change clothes and do what they need to do to become those who need to lead the ones who need to be led. And the the... 
the Catholics. I mean, I, I, I was, I was brought up very strangely in Utah. So my, my dad was a Mormon. He was, um, a Latter-day Saints missionary. He went to Peru of all places and delved. He was actually one of the, uh, original missionaries that opened Peru to, um, LDS missionaries. And he was completely blown away by the other theologies that he ran into, obviously going to Lima, Peru and to, um, Cusco and, you know, dealing with this very real force, uh, that was obvious energy and yet trying to preach something which he later found was more uh, manipulated from the shadows in his opinion. And this is what happens when, when you go to like conquer these, these others that you believe originally are not as smart or as worthy as yourself. And then you, you find that, uh, if anything, they may have a deeper understanding of the true nature of this reality. And, um, back to my upbringing, I would go, I, my mom was Catholic and was almost a nun. So she was a virgin when they got married, they were very pious. So my dad was a Mormon. My mom was a Catholic. And so they didn't know how they couldn't agree on how to bring me up. It was a very convoluted, uh, situation. So I would go to one church one Sunday and the other church the next Sunday. And I did this basically until I was seven years old and could make, um, my decision because they, they baptized children in the Mormon church right around the age of eight. So, uh, I was very confused. Um, and I quickly understood, maybe that was a good thing because I quickly understood that both of these religions were ultimately trying to control people kind of saying the same things, but in ways that helped them. And it seemed like a plot to me early on, even though I got a very, very solid belief in, in, you know, the reality of powers that were unhuman or not human, or, or maybe a little bit more, uh, sacred or cosmic the 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 bottom line is that it was inverted I, I found that religion was very inverted and kind of anything goes as long as it works for the religion and i'm not talking badly about either of those religions but um it it's it's permitted in this day and age and they're not always what they appear to be i think many of the religions these days are quite inverted yeah, absolutely. It's it's really interesting that experience of duality there, you know, and and kind of like even you know being forced to choose between your mom or your dad in a kind of uh in an extended kind of way, you know, like oh, be become a part of dad's world or become a part of mom's world. I mean, for me, I had no choice. It was get baptized, get confirmed and all that. And as I was being drugged to dragged, I should say, not drugged. Nobody drugged me. <laughs> As I was being dragged <laughs> to church uh, every Sunday, I had that same uh, 
inf- instinct of like, well, they're just trying to control how I see the world, you know? Uh, but I imagine that that was probably a lot more explicit for you, uh, seeing like the, the, the contrast between the two and even possibly between the, the adherence and like how people would, would, uh, I mean, did others know you were in that situation of having to choose? Was was anyone kind of like sw- trying to sway you towards one side aside from your parents? I would definitely say that my first girlfriend, who was uh, a bishop's daughter, that same high school <laughs> sweetheart, I had uh, pretty much the entirety of my uh, younger life. She was a uh, bishop's daughter, very LDS, very much trying to sway me uh, to that religion. Yet again, this inverted nature of the of the whole thing. You know, we we were young. We 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 liked to make out. The we didn't have our own place, and the only place we could go was she had keys to the ward house near where I lived. And so quite literally, as crazy as it sounds, that was like where we would go. You know, she had entrance to, uh, to, to, to the church. And so, um, very, very, you know, I realized that the compulsion, uh, based on need can be, uh, especially at young ages can be something that you later, you know, wish you could, you wouldn't have taken those actions, but um, yeah, I, I found a lot it, it, living in Utah, at least I'm, not to date myself. I'm 47. So back then it was predominantly LDS. Now it's a little bit less. Um, however, then it was in the high eighties, if not 90 percentile. And it was deeply advocated that this was a very social thing to do. It's, you know, you were either a member or you weren't and you were either included or you weren't. So I was always kind of half included because I was only there half the time. And it, it, it was, um, it was strange, but it was definitely an interesting way of growing up in an ultra Zionist, if you want to call it that, since they believe it is Zion, um, ultra Zionist way. Mm. And, you know, I have a lot of respect for anybody of any religion, including uh, many of my best friends are LDS. And, you know, they have ties to these these families with connections that set them apart. But at the same time, when you compartmentalize these societies and look at the true nature of some of these family bloodlines, uh, many of them are perpetrators. And um, I would say remain unpunished or even unacknowledged because of the secretism around you know, it's all there. I, I mean, a lot of people just are unwilling to look, but just like our discussion today, it's not like any of this is really in secret. You can, you can follow the names, you can follow the families, you can see them changing their names. You can see them being involved in the same things that they claim they're not involved in. And it, and it kind of goes back to, you know, enter like Jacob Frank, you know, and what his beliefs were, you know, he, he believed that Lucifer was the true God and much like many contend, you know, that some Freemasons say that as you get higher and higher on the scale, that the, the scale starts to change, it becomes inverted. But Sabatian Frankists were told that, you know, do what thou wilt. I mean, here we go. Same thing as Aleister Crowley. And this was an anything goes no matter what 
the effect to others philosophy, much like Mossad, much like the CIA, and again, back to the Bavarian sect of the Illuminati and the original German chapter of the Brotherhood of Death, we have Skull and Bones 322. And, you know, 322 has a lot of significance, not only in numerology, but also in the very nature of what it means, you know, that man will become God. And it sounds crazy, you know, for, for, to, to talk about it like that, but that is inherently what Genesis three, two, two says. Yeah. Wow. And to bring it back to that, and I, I want to get back to that in a moment, but what you said about you know, Zion and it being the new Zion, I can't help but make the comparison to New Haven or as I've been calling it, New Heaven. Uh, the, the early colonizers of New Haven, I hate using that term colonizers, it's so loaded, but it's, it's only one that works. Right. The, the, the early uh, people who settled in New Haven, uh, they had this exact idea of, oh, we're in the new Zion. We're in the, the biblical, you know, garden of Eden. They even referred to the indigenous as a whole as the remnants of Joseph, suggesting that they were, uh, somehow survivors of the flood and, uh, are related, you know, this whole idea that they're the, the lost tribe of Israel or, or some sort of, uh, Babylonian tribe that was kind of hidden in the in the wilds uh, and kind of didn't fit into whatever that cataclysm judgment flood uh, idea is and I can't help but imagine putting myself in the foot in the shoes of of, of Mormon pioneers as they you know go across the plains and they they exit the plains going through these huge mountains to find, you know, this desert, you know, very much uh, the same as all of what they've been obsessed with reading about. I mean, not the obsessed, it's all they really had to read back then and learn from was the Bible. So here they are in this, you know, uh, desert, just like what they've, uh, you know, where their imagination has had them. In, in the Bible, you know, through their reading and learning and all that, it, it just must have been, uh, you know, shocking, probably uh, felt like a perfect fit. But before we, you said Zion, and I guess I mistook, I, I mistook, uh, I didn't mean to suggest Salt Lake City had a different name. What I was thinking of was the entire colony that the Mormons started was called uh Deseret or the state of Deseret, right? And, oh, and such and it, a huge, yeah, that's so, I'm so glad you brought that up. Well, and what's yeah. interesting about it is the, the seal for this state of Deseret, um, was this beehive, this, you know, beehive kind of, um, icon, right. That was associated yep. with it. And that's right on the university of Utah's seal. And the university of Utah originally was established as the university of Deseret. And this is, I mean, so interesting for me. I love this kind of stuff. Um, we're doing a new podcast called Esoteric America, where we kind of go state by state, town by town, and see what's, you know, hidden in the past and, you know, weird stories and things like that. But 
unrelated uh, and more related to the skull and bones topic, I found a very strange uh, illustration from, uh, well, it's inside of Anthony Sutton's Fleshing Out Skull and Bones, a book that Chris Milligan put together. Um, There's this sort of illustration of the four secret society buildings at Yale, and there's a a number of symbols that are sort of surrounding the illustrations of the buildings themselves. And one of the symbols is this beehive uh, stone... I mean, I think of it as like a stone oven because there's a lot of uh, lore that the Romans built this thing called King Arthur's Owen. And and I guess Owen is like a Gaelic version of oven. Uh, And I actually visited uh, this huge brick oven in Pennsylvania along the Susquehanna River with Michael Wan. He took me to this, this strange like brick oven in the woods it's all grown over and a freaking gopher ran at us and <laughs> jumped inside of his little hole it's all overrun <laughs> with gophers now uh, but there's these huge stone ovens uh, and I wonder if you know this symbol has two meanings uh, maybe it's a beehive maybe it's it's also has something to do with these stone structures uh, but when I saw that on the skull and bones kind of illustration, And then I see it here as the symbol for Deseret. I mean, there we go. Here's another of many connections between Skull and Bones and this area of Utah. Man, yes. The the eternal cycle, the I mean Deseret Deseret or Deseret actually means honeybee. And that is that that symbol that you're talking about on the University of Utah is quite literally, you know, on its shield, that is quite literally an Illuminati seal, you know, representing the eternal cycle. And every human is a part of a larger eternal design. And they're all individual gears in this clock that has no end, according to the Illuminati. And though they may never realize it, it, a person's actions have the power to alter the future of the entire hive or the hive mind. And it's very interesting that you see that that honeybee, that honey hive symbol everywhere in Salt Lake City, Utah, in Utah in general. And, you know, it is it's it's very reminiscent of the Illuminati because it is an Illuminati symbol and a very prominent symbol in Zion or in Deseret. And you know, it's wild that you mentioned the lost tribes of Israel earlier, and I don't want this to slip through my fingers before definitely touching base on it, because Joseph Smith, the original prophet and founder of the LDS religion, he believed that there were these lost tribes of Israel, and he spoke often of uh, very far-fetched, you know, in, in certain aspects. However, he did speak often of the Native Americans being one of these lost tribes of Israel. And he spoke of two different, um, it's it's somewhat racist, I guess, now speaking about it. But at the time, he called them the Lamanites. Uh, and basically, um, his reading and writing about them was was very, very kind of rough. It was basically that 
God issued um, like a tainting of the skin or a blackening of the skin among the uh, the 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 unholy um, the unholy ones, and so they were seen as being inherently evil. And this is the, the, this is one of those strange <laughs> historic things that is kind of uh, swept under the rug for all intents and purposes. Because the the Book of Mormon is super interesting because it's very funny to see how it gets changed. Much like, hey, I'm not picking on them. Much like the Bible. I mean, there's type part, you know, with these additions and with the the way that these religious books are continually edited. It seems like almost a constant basis to be more tangible and palatable to the culture of the time where if you go back to like a first printing first edition, it's very obvious that these ancient orders have a completely different mindset that has paramount differences with what they claim to be today. And this is one of those cases where basically that the, you know, the creator caused the blackening of the skin of those who were unholy and, um, so you could easily tell them from from the more light skinned and things of that nature. But anyway, not to go off on a tangent, but man, the honey, the honey bee and the honey, you know, the honey bees implications to Illum- Illuminati order, the fact that a lot of the major um, structures in the area are in fact uh, like kilns, like ovens, like you said, and these <clears throat> You can find these all over Utah, all over Salt Lake. There's very interesting structures, even right behind the University of Utah, but got something in my throat. So let's move on. Sorry. No, that's all right. I just showed you the images that I have uh, found of these stone chambers. They're called beehive chambers. There's a bunch in Ireland and there's a few hidden in the woods here in New England, which suggests that maybe... um, Either the Native Americans here were in contact with people over there earlier than Columbus or possibly that people from Europe had settled here in the New World prior to Columbus. And and yeah, that kind of fits into this whole mythos of, uh, you know, what was going on with the Native Americans prior to Columbus. Obviously, there's a lot of, uh, you know, biased and very racist connotations from the early colonists. I, I recently learned about a gentleman named Thomas Harriet, who was like uh, this author, Ronnie Pontiac, calls him the first uh, evil genius in American history because what he did was he went and learned um, one of the native languages here. He's one of the first Englishmen to do that. Um, and he used that intelligence, that information to, you know, basically further the efforts of the charters and the companies, you know, the colonies of Virginia colony. And so it was a very, um, racist time obviously looking back with our perspective now um but yeah definitely there's this mythical mystical undertone that's kind of got swept aside because of that racism and i i kind of set out to do a lot of this research in one way because you know now you see these ivy league schools that have their roots in a lot of this uh racism 
uh, and slavery and genocide. Uh, now they're the ones pushing this woke agenda, social identity, just social justice. And, and it's utterly hypo- hy- hypocritical when you look at the foundations of Harvard, Yale, and, and so on. And so many schools that were founded uh, in the West were founded by bonesmen or people that graduated from Harvard or Yale. And and this whole contingency of Mormon uh, pioneers, I mean, they were all uh, Freemasons for the most part, too. So not that all Freemasons are necessarily, um, you know, the mark of evil, but we definitely need to uh, look at Freemasonry and, and Skull and Bones kind of fits into that time period uh, not directly related to Freemasonry, but from what I've learned, it, it seems that you know groups like Skull and Bones formed because after the William Morgan affair, uh, Freemasonry had become you know distasteful in the public eye. People realized that oh, this is a big grand uh, corrupt. Uh, scheme here and we need to get these people out of office it only worked for a few years people forgot uh, and moved on and and the masons kept moving and shaking but uh, it seems like skull and bones is a a byproduct of that social cultural reflex at the time of like well we can't we can't do things the way we used to so and maybe that opened up maybe that was something that the older secret societies that maybe had uh, rivalries with the American Freemasonry, maybe they set that up so that they can then infiltrate America with their secret societies. I mean, right here, Skull and Bones is explicitly a German sort of organization, right? And it comes from a period in Germany where, you know, the monarchy was still in power, but was kind of shifting and Obviously, World War One went and broke up all of those empires, but um, they still had a lot of power in the 19th century. And we mentioned the Giga Codex earlier. I'm curious. I don't want to divert too much, um, but I do have a question about the Bavarian king, Rudolf II. I'm curious if you know much about him. I learned recently that he was kind of like an alchemist king, and he was the one who invited John Dee and Edward Kelly to his court. Uh, You heard much about this guy? Are you still there, Ryan? There you are. Sorry, I had you on mute there. That's all right. Um, Yes. Uh, so I think that it, it's super interesting that this all comes back to, you know, Bavaria, Germany. And, you know, when it's when you're talking about I'm glad you brought up John D, because this gets back to a lot of these beliefs. And um, as, as far as the the king as well, a lot of these beliefs that we're talking about a philosophic Kabbalistic ladder you know, where we're talking about magic and also the, the golden tree of the mysteries or the tree of life, or quite literally Genesis three, two, two, where it says, knowing the difference between good and evil, man can become God. And when you're looking at these hierarchies as John D and others have spoken of, you are basically realizing that a wise man um, for lack of a better term, is one who can climb up 
and down this ladder or this uh this literal tree of knowledge between good and evil and again getting back to the opposites you know the the beginning and the end you know uh death and all of the all of the uh symbols of death this is all part of the kabbalistic ladder and the tree of life and kabbalah is a big part of all of this because it is quite literally the tools that are used to do this you know it all comes from solomon a lot of the books that the masters use include that but at the end of the day <clears throat> sorry we're talking about the quintessence or, you know, the four elements to get it super simple. You have what people obviously believe is, you know, earth, air, fire, and water. And, uh, the, these, these four elements are, are very important. The Elohim or L or the first motion or, uh, the philosopher's stone is fire. And then you have the other elements, which is, you know, water, earth, and air. And we have air, which is more the chaos or the universal spirit, um, the creatures that we're talking about that a lot of people think are crazy. You know, these, this hierarchy of angels flying around that John D. would scry and speak to. But this is something that is very believed in in a lot of these ancient mystery religions. And it's it's so far-fetched that I don't think it's completely crazy. I believe that there is something to it. Um, and the belief that the earth existed, you know, in and out of water, getting back to the chemistry or the, the earth matter and salt and, you know, Atlantis is something that is obviously another thing that is very much believed. And this is not a joke. If you, if you, if you delve into a lot of the hierarchy of intelligence in this country, <clears throat> as well as Britain and at the time of John D., these were things that were very heavily relied upon at the time of war. You know, it kind of brings us to that crazy belief that what is it? Millionaires believe in astrology and billionaires believe in astronomy. Um, right. And water or Atlantis is kind of that really big, you know, spirit of God that's suspended above the, the waters. You know, alchemy when it comes to water <clears throat> is very very important and d would rely on these hierarchies and these hierarchies of whatever you want to call them angels or demons or the the gods that guide us wondrously these are undoubtedly believed in by many um including including the bavarian king rudolph so i i think that in fact there's a lot of importance that, you know, it keeps coming back to Germany and to the Germanic tribes, <clears throat> for example, the Thule Society or Thule Society, however you want to say it. And I think a major reason for that is many of these individuals that are intrigued and involved with heavy magic, including Madame Blavatsky, believed that this society of Nordic tribes was quite literally sort of one of these lost tribes and the most powerful or the favorite of god's tribes and you know looking back historically into the war times when 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 people would go up against these tribes 
<clears throat> the the tales they would tell of the wars with them were unbelievable. In fact, the men would they they weren't like the other tribes where just the men would fight and the women would stay home. No, the men would rush into battle many times naked and screaming and um, decimating their enemies. After which a second wave, which was their females, would come through and finish off everybody and pick their bones clean. And depending on who you believe, uh, delve into a bit of cannibalism, sometimes taking bites out of their enemies and stuff that really just put fear into any that that fought against them. But it was the belief of many of the integral parts of what we know today as modern esotericism, Blavatsky and such, where this was in their belief system, a very special uh, group of people upon the earth and um, the Aryan nation, if you want to call it that, not to get too racist, but we kind of already got to that shady level of, of the truth. But yeah, it's believed a lot of these families may assume that some of these ancient religions and cultures were were quite uh, quite racist, for lack of a better word. Well, and and this is is sort of evident when you look at how the poor are treated in this country with racial division. You know, it's not the poor whites that are uh, uh, you know pointing the finger. It's the wealthy and affluent who claim, oh yeah, people, all those racists, they're, they're just, you know, country bumpkins when, yeah, sure. There's some crazy biker gangs and I'm sure there's some wild rednecks who still believe in the KKK bullshit. But, uh, for the most part, it seems like this institutional racism is the real issue. And that, is part and parcel to being an elite, you know? I mean, they write it. They make no, uh, they take really no effort to hide it. You know, you mentioned um, Brigham Young or or, who, or Joseph Smith's term, the Lamanites, and, and yeah, that's just one of many. And Benjamin Franklin himself referred to the Native Americans as savages several times, and they probably had even worse things to say about African people and black people. But, uh, yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's a controversial subject. We don't need to spend that much time on it. I think that, uh, you know, as two white men, people aren't going to care much about our opinions, unfortunately. Uh, maybe aside from this audience of open-minded, intelligent people. But I do want to shift gears a bit and ask you about Salt Lake City itself, because one thing that I noticed with New Haven, doing my research in New Haven, uh, is that, you know, unlike many of our colonial cities like Boston and uh, New York City to some extent, uh, you know, New Haven has this sort of nine square grid, okay? Uh, a lot of the colonies, the roads were built for walking and horses, right? So when they adapted them to modern uh, roads, there's sort of a lot of changes took place. But for the most part, you, know, you can, can feel kind of crowded in like places like Providence and Boston because the streets are very like narrow. Uh, and New Haven is a little different because it has this nine square 
grid and it's not exactly square the whole way through the city, but it's based around this nine square grid with the center being the New Haven Green, uh, aka this sort of park, public park. It's public but privately owned. I'm going to share my screen so you can see what the pathwork looks like. But when you take a look at that pathwork in the center green area, I mean, do you start to see maybe some pentacles or <laughs> something going on there? Yes. And speaking of Salt Lake City, I'm glad you shared your screen. It's very similar in the grid pattern, the order involved in how the um, LDS temple stands literally at zero and zero. So it is the central focal point. Huh. And it the, the town expands out from that. Well, and that's uh, that's singularity. That's why I wanted to bring up New Haven first in contrast because you know I, I haven't traveled much in the West, but I have been to a few cities out west. And what I immediately noticed was how grid-like the cities were. Like everything was a grid literally a grid whereas out here in new england because of the shoreline and whatnot it's not exactly that square you know it's more of a, a weird pattern but new haven has this you know kind of grid which is strange comparatively but that seems to be the norm out there in the west and i'm wondering if this uh, can be interpreted like a magic square because when you look at you know, these magic squares that are used in the Kabbalah, it kind of reminds me of that pattern I just showed you on the New Haven green, as if that nine square grid is being, you know, sort of connect the dots. And what you're seeing in the pathwork on the center green area is actually those lines that are, you know, going past the green into the nine squares that make the you know, basis of the downtown area, you know, with that in mind, some of these cities out West, I mean, the magic that could be done in this context of placing certain buildings adjacent to one another, creating this pattern on the grid, essentially a magic square uh, on the earth. I mean, do you think that's something that the Freemasons are up to in, in Salt Lake City? What are your thoughts on this? I think it absolutely has to do with the guidance and being um, aware of your location and how basically um, ba finding who you are, where you are, and how to get where you need to go. The 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 fact that the temple grounds is the zero point um, of or the singularity of the city, and it grows from out there. And I thought it was really interesting as you were sharing your screen that all the roadways even had that little emblem of the uh, beehive on them. Oh, Route but 71, yeah. yeah. <laughs> that was wild. But yeah, I think, you know, every human's kind of guided by this internal compass. And if you remember, you have to remember that zero point to know where you're going and where you're going back to, which points to the light or the revealing of truth or the illumination or the direction when you're making decisions. And I think that's super, super valuable when it comes to Deseret or Zion, where all human interaction getting where you need to go directionally and the spiritual beliefs and ultimately seeking the light in the form and function of direction and where the 
the illumination is where you need to go. And the church grounds is always highly illuminated. It, it's a beacon. And um, it reminds me of that, that saying by Rumi, you know, if everything around you seems dark, look again, you may be the light. You can see the church grounds from any of the hills around Salt Lake City, and you can know what direction to go to. So I think it has a big part to do with that, you know, how, how people have that inner comfort compass, especially in their city, knowing where they're going and being reminded eternally of that illumination. Yeah, it's, it's definitely, you know, it's more obvious in places like Washington, D.C., you know, the sort of bird's eye view, road work magic going on. But I think when you look at a place like Salt Lake City, and as you just described, you know, the placement of the church, the emphasis in the view from, you know, 360 degrees of the church, I've never visited Salt Lake City. Shout out to my cousin Joey who lives out there. Uh, he actually has a peanut butter brand that I told him I would talk about on the show. Shout out to Nuz Butter. That's his peanut butter brand that he makes out of Salt Lake City. Uh, funny enough. But anyways, yeah, uh, never been there. But from what I've heard, it's got quite uh, a unique energy being out there in utah and i'm sure that adds to the mystical elements but when it comes to skull and bones and the you know crypt their tomb and it's a sort of proximity to the cemetery uh is there anything going on like that with the university of utah do they have any strange cemeteries on the premises or uh, even maybe a connection to the morgue or grave robbing. I mean, this is something that I've been curious about with Skull and Bones in New Haven. It seems like in the colonial times they had a need for cadavers and it was sort of illegal to uh, go about digging up you know, people's graves and probably difficult to do so considering a lot of people were buried in mass graves behind churches back then. But... Uh, but yeah, I mean, that's kind of my suspicion is that maybe these Skull and Bones boys were recruited uh, as grave robbers for the early medical schools in the colonies. Yeah, there is. The city is so much. It, it's interesting you mentioned Washington, D.C., because it is so interesting as far as some of the uh interesting things that you will find if you if you google the gilgal sculpture garden for example uh, which is located at it's behind a chuckarama on 70 749 east 500 south and it's g-i-l-g-a-l sculpture garden it's something you just have to see you have uh, a sphinx with the face of joseph smith on it um, you have a lot of very interesting Masonic symbolism oh, wow. throughout yeah. the garden. I'm seeing it right here. It almost looks like it's made from like prehistoric stone even. I was expecting like some kind of like sculpture like out of metal and whatnot. But no, these are all stone sculptures, almost like petroglyph on one of them there's like an arch of what look like dry mortar boulders and they're just kind of like 
mean, maybe there's rebar going through them all, but it kind of, at least to the eye, looks like they're all stacked in such a way that they're, you know, in this perfect arch. Uh, wow. Do you know when this was built? It looks old. Uh, maybe that's just the, you know, illusion. No, it's the... it's very interesting. The um, it's private property. That's very the person who did it uh, was a visionary. He did it himself. It's very a very similar myth and lore to the um, Coral Castle. Yeah. That, you know, this guy did it by himself at night and. It, it has, you know, basically his beliefs in stone right there on his property and uh, very Masonic, you know, the, the cornerstone, there's an image of a cornerstone. I mean, to imagine that a person did that by themselves is pretty far-fetched. And, you know, the, 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 there's a lot of symbolism and a lot of what's written there is strange. In addition... There's other areas in Salt Lake City. The Masonic Lodge in Salt Lake City is one of the most wild Masonic temples I have ever seen. And I only say that because not only is it the cornerstone of the Fraternal Association there in the city, it is also a rumored meeting place for other organizations, not to say too much, but um, the Wasatch Lodge, the Mount Moriah Lodge, the Grand Royal Arch Masons, the the Shriners, um, basically they all sort of share in 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 using this this building. And um, there's an actual stairway inside, which is between the two pillars. It's, it's one of the wildest, uh, I don't know if you could even find this image online, but it's one of, it's, it's a stairway between the two pillars, much like Freemasons believe, holding up the earth and the black sun. And you can walk up, uh, you know, these stairs from the level and get to the hearing, the seeing, the feeling. And uh, basically up the up the ladder of illumination. Let me see if I can find this. It's so amazing. Mm. Share this. Share this with my. Oh, here we go. Is that it? Yeah, it really mm. is. Uh, I'm looking at some of the pictures from the sculpture garden. It says it was built in around the 1940s. Opened in 1947. Uh, but it seems like over the course of this guy's life, uh, 1888 to 1963, he put this together. And yeah, not a lot of information um, about the building of it, but it mentions there's an eccentric sacrificial altar, a shrine to uh, his beloved wife, Bertha. Wow. <laughs> you know, because that's what you should make for your wife, a nice sacrificial altar. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Oh, I'm sending you an image of this stairway that I have, but I can't find it online. Now this but, is um, a different location in, in Salt Lake City. Yeah, yeah. There's there's a lot of them. And um the, the Freemasonic Temple oh, is wow, very yeah. important in Salt Lake City. I've seen this kind of uh pattern on tracing boards on you know Masonic tracing board images. If you search that term uh on Google, you can find pictures like this, but yeah, with the different uh, symbols on each stair and then mm -hmm. the words hearing, seeing, feeling, um, 
I'm guessing it's blocked by the railing, but I'm guessing it would say maybe telling or understanding the next two ones. I don't know. But, uh, yeah. Well, and then they have the globe. One of them is a globe is of the cool earth. One? And then the other one's like a black. Globe. Yeah. The black sun. Wow. So cool. Yeah. And it, it, that, that, that building remains in continual and constant use since it's been opened. And it is, um, it's used by a wide variety of different associations. Basically, um, I'll leave it at that. But uh, d- you know, the fact that that it is just so close in coordinates to the it's just right east. Go figure of the temple grounds on the same street, and it is on South Temple Street, and. Um, it's massive. It, it's, it's absolutely massive. And, mm-hmm. uh, it, it, like I said, it has, it has a lot of Egyptian and mixed uses. So that's another one. There are, uh, other interesting places all around, but I think the temple grounds is probably the most blatant in its design, you know, with, um, the angel Moroni on the rooftop covered in 24 karat gold and blowing his trumpet. Um, there's a lot of things that are extremely interesting in the architecture of the temple as well, such as when it was originally designed, obviously by Freemasons, by the time they got to Utah, almost all Mormon men were, were at least third degree Freemasons, if not higher. And when it was built, they left shafts in the corners without knowing why they were doing it at the time. And now those shafts are elevator shafts, which is very strange that they had the correct, uh, maybe coincidentally, the correct specifications, the perfect size for all of the elevator workings and the elevator itself. And so it was very easy for them to retrograde basically go in and and retroactively put in brand new elevators that fit perfectly in these shafts in interestingly enough uh a lot of the design things were 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 kind of over the top at the time the way it was built and uh out of massive blocks i mean it is so thick it is for being relatively modern I would say it's probably the most um, stunning in, in in the way that it was built from a Freemasonic, just, just stonemason perspective, a very good example of what modern masons are still able to do. Much like that Gilgan Garden, I mean, pretty wild, but uh, that there is still, you know, that aspect of Freemasonry, the actual stonemason who can still participate in creating these massive um energy transferring buildings that can for lack of a better word bring that essence you know which i just found out you know that essence is like that intrinsic connection with god and bring that spiritualism at least in the form of like awe you know it's awe inspiring and people uh when they're searching for you know spirituality or happiness or wisdom when they see that they're automatically thrown off kilter and can be subjected to authority and what the authority wants to program into them much easier when you're just in an awe-inspired mood. 
And uh, the underground area of the temple grounds is something that is often not discussed, but something that is also present. And there are tunnel systems connecting below the temple in all directions, especially south. And uh, they used to have tunnels going from, well, north as well and east to the church office building. But the tunnels are rumored to go for miles and miles. And I've known people that have been in them and claim that, you know, they're in these golf carts. And sometimes the golf carts will run out of juice because the tunnel systems are so long. And they would go underneath uh, what is now called the gateway. Now, the names are super important. What is now called the gateway used to be called Crossroads. Um, Crossroads Mall or Crossroads Plaza across the street um, from the Zion's Mercantile, which was basically the the church uh, retail area. And Crossroads Mall is now known as the Gateway. But yeah, there are all kinds of tunnels under there. And when they removed Crossroads Mall, which is actually sort of rumored to be cross worlds because there was more than one employee at the Crossroads Mall that would stay late, be working on stocking or other, you know, merchandise functions and inventory, things like that. And more than one employee at the Crossroads Mall came forward, especially in the 80s and 90s, claiming that creatures or people, they weren't quite sure, um, could be heard in these tunnel systems and sometimes would enter the mall itself. So there's some interesting stuff online about that. But there is um, a long history of the tunnel systems going towards a hotel called the Peary Hotel. And I've been in the catacombs, as they call them, underneath the Peary, and I have been in those tunnels. And those are rumored to go all the way to the temple grounds and south as well. So I have no reason not to believe it because I've seen it. I just haven't been directly under the temple grounds. And another thing to mention is when they did remove crossroads, they had a hole below it that I can only say is as deep as um, after the Twin Towers went down. I don't know if you've seen that hole. It was similar in depth. So there was a lot of infrastructure going on underground. Yeah, wow, that's that's really, you know, again, something that parallels New Haven, and you have to wonder if that sort of thing was accounted for when choosing to open a, you know, another chapter in the University of Utah. Because comparatively, I mean, you look at Yale University, uh, $42 billion endowment, that's, you know, second largest institution uh, in I might say world, it could just be country. I'm pretty sure it's the world. Um, maybe they're just listing the American one second to Harvard. Whereas the University of Utah, I mean, doesn't even make that list. They're all the way down there at $1 billion, um, which is still a lot. I mean, geez, that's a lot of money. But uh, but yeah, comparatively, it, it seems like Yale would have uh, maybe more interest in infiltrating their peer Ivy League institutions, but I found that they, they've gone, you know, out of their way to develop the University of California, John Hopkins University. I mean, there's so many 
colleges, universities that are in cahoots, we'll say, with Harvard and Yale. But uh, yeah, maybe the University of Utah made the cut for other reasons, like Yale, the University of Utah, as we've discussed, has its roots in this very, uh, you know, religious, we'll say extremist uh, ideology, you know, because uh, there are many people who escape Mormonism, right? You don't hear that. Uh, <laughs> you don't hear that about things that are are generally uh, good for everybody. But again, no slight to anybody who is a Mormon and, and, and you know, has a good experience with that religion in their life. Uh, obviously, you have many friends where that's the case. It doesn't seem that they're lives are hindered by being Mormons, but, uh, you know, obviously people within these sort of insular communities are more susceptible to the type of thinking that leads to, uh, well, what we can call, uh, terrorism, right? I mean, obviously that term has been applied, uh, mishappenly to, uh, you know, certain groups when really the terrorists seem to be, um, Groups like Skull and Bones, who are behind groups like the Nazis funding them, uh, and many other incidents. You know, that's just one example. The whole opium war, you could say that's a form of terrorism, terrorizing the sovereignty of the minds and health of, of people all over the world, specifically in the United States. And these families that were very much a part of Yale from the beginning, very much a part of the Mormon pioneer group uh, of people that settled in the state of Desiree. Um, you know, it, it's obvious that there's this sort of common uh, bond, you know, people often call it like white Anglo-Saxon Protestant, but, you know, they don't include the Mormons in that, but they should because the Mormons are just this sort of more occult offshoot of that uh, sort of Anglo-Saxon Protestant mix that got a stronghold in the New World in the uh, original 13 colonies, mostly in the northern section of the original 13 colonies. And yeah, it's it's a lot of information to sort through. So I'm grateful to have a friend like you, Ryan, to come on the show and uh, share this common interest with me and, and help sort through all this uh, very murky information. But uh, you have your own podcast, Hero Paranormal. Uh, I recommend anyone listening to this, go over to your YouTube channel, go over to the podcast if you're listening via podcast, wherever you're listening to the show, uh, and subscribe. Support this man. Help him out. He's putting a lot of really awesome information out there. Uh, Ryan, you got any final thoughts on, on the topic today? Anything you want to add before we uh, close the door for now? Uh, no, I think it's been a great conversation and I think, you know, it, 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 like, like we said a little bit earlier, it's, it sometimes is a little bit difficult to find these invisible power structures that, um, as you said, these, these elite organizations believe they're better than others. And that, that became very, very obvious with, uh, people such as Elihu Yale, who Yale is named after who was quite literally a privateer, you know, a gentleman up front, but in the back end, just a pirate. 
and how, how they supernaturally, you know, get these treasure troves, you know, their finances are off the charts. And, and, uh, I think that the, again, you know, that brings us just quickly, um, before we close to, you know, Geronimo's skull at Yale and how they much like the Germanic tribes we spoke of with the Thule, uh, and the Aryan tribes, they, they believe that conquering their enemies and keeping artifacts from their enemies is part of the circle of knowledge and part of their true fundamental laws and true spiritualism. So there is some very ancient esoteric stuff at hand, but if we don't become aware of this, and a lot of it's in plain sight now with um, more being revealed um, genealogically, history online, etc., it's all there. It's not as if we're, we're, we're taking threads from different places and trying to connect them. They're all there. You just have to look. And I think if it's very important to look because many of these powers at hand are still doing the very same thing to this day. And we still see, you know, uh, basically a new world order, um, in, in, in war times with, uh, places and people who they believe are not as elite as themselves. And th this is going to continue. So it's, it's nice to get a kind of um, idea of what's happened in the past to know what's going on in the present and understand what will be taking place in the future. But yeah, man, I, I love talking about this stuff. I could do it, do it all day. Thanks so much for having me on. Yeah, absolutely. And I second, the latter part of what you just said, because, yeah, that's that's what's going on. I mean, you know, people who don't have the interest that we do might not realize the connections between what happened in history and what's unfolding on the modern stage today. And, and I think the great value in your research and the research that I try to present on this show with the various guests like yourself I invite on here is to demonstrate you know, those connections and, and the groups truly responsible, because if we don't identify them soon, <laughs> we're going to be, you know, chastising their grandchildren for the sins of their grandfathers, right? So I think we need to get ahead of it. We need to understand our enemy. And if anything, just use that information to avoid letting their sinister agenda affect your life because there is a, a way to freedom and and i think you know ryan you found that freedom in your life clearly you have the uh freedom to go and do really interesting research you know in a variety of of areas not just the stuff we talked about today you've been on the show before to talk about i mean number of things so clearly there's hasn't we haven't reached the end of your knowledge yet and i hope we we don't but please do let me know when you have something else like this that you'd like to talk about on my show i really appreciate you messaging me about this it came synchronistically at a very strange time because i'll say this and maybe we'll we'll talk about this for a brief moment for the patreon audience only and for everyone else listening Thank you so much for being here. Sign up on the Patreon to hear the rest of this and also be sure to support Ryan at Hero Paranormal. Is there anything else you want to plug before we switch over to the Patreon for a brief moment? 
Um, let's see. Um, oh, I've got a couple of books. Um, you can get those at ryanpatrickburns.com. And I have a little science project up there in the Uinta Basin of Utah, um, an area that the Mormon pioneers said was only useful to hold the world together. It's a very high, highly odd and anomalous, high strangeness, prolific area with UFOs and portals and the like, and cryptozoological creatures. Um, my little science project up there is known as Space Wolf Research, a base camp of sorts just on the south boundary, um, touching fence lines with the old Sherman Ranch or the old Bigelow Ranch, and that is spacewolfresearch.com. But that's about all I've got. Yeah, Hero Paranormal is the podcast, and uh, yes, definitely subscribe on YouTube or Hero Paranormal on Patreon. Wonderful. Well, for my audience and uh, Ryan's too, I, I know you're going to post this somewhere, maybe on your Patreon. Uh, for everyone listening on my end, support us on Patreon. And here, uh, my final question for Ryan Burns. Until next time, enjoy the moment wherever you are in the now. All right, friends, thank you so much for tuning into the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast. Be sure to support Ryan P. Burns. He's got some books available on Amazon, uh, Shapeshifter Territory, the Utah UFO Ranch, and Skinwalker and Beyond. And of course, his podcast is titled Hero Paranormal. He gets into a lot of interesting research. And uh, if you've listened to our previous interview with Ryan on Illuminati Confirmed, you'll know that Ryan may be privy to uh, certain information. So uh, take that for what you will. I've found him to be a nice guy who's a great person to have as a podcast guest. Um, but either way, expect some excellent interviews on the horizon. We've got some really great guests that I've spoken to and some awesome guests scheduled uh, all to be announced. I can with or, uh, disclose that we'll be having Charles Eisenstein on the show, Jeff Harmon on the show, and uh, Sydney Gant of Stoner Dads and Two Jacked Bros for all you comedy podcast fans. So I'm excited about those. You can, of course, get those episodes right now on our Rockfin. Uh, they're also available via Patreon. So go over, subscribe, support the show, and you get all of these episodes early. Maybe you're listening right now on the Patreon. This is uh, the part of the show where I normally go on and plug a bunch of other stuff, but I thought since this is a Skull and Bones episode, we might talk about some of the recent research that I've been doing into this subject. And uh, yeah, it's quite interesting. I recently found out I recently found out that the Yale University Art Gallery has a shrine to Mithra. So I did a little research into Mithraism because I know some things, but I, I don't really know all that much. So I looked up the Mithraic cult and I found out that, of course, Mithra was born from a stone. Some legends even say 
the Romans believed he was born from a stone ice giant, sort of a blending of the Norse beliefs and the Roman beliefs. And this fascinated me, considering that Yale has a Mithraic shrine, because only one town away from Yale, uh, from New Haven, uh, one town north in Hamden, Connecticut, there is a mountain called Sleeping Giant. So who knows? Maybe this is connected. Maybe there are rituals that take place in New Haven uh, that are Mithraic in nature, hence this shrine. We've heard about Bloomberg's temple over there in London that he had moved into a different building, allegedly. So they do this kind of thing all the time, you know? They just cut things up piece by piece and then go reassemble it uh, somewhere else. So with that being said, if you'd like more information like that, please go over to the Substack. That's myfamilythinksimcrazy.substack.com. You can sign up for $8 a month or pay uh, for the whole year. And uh, yeah, you get all these premium articles that I'm writing up. Uh, I found if I write articles, it makes it a lot easier to have something to talk about when I go on podcasts as a guest, which is something I really enjoy doing. And also, uh, maybe one day this will amount to a book of some kind. So if you want to get in on the ground floor, sign up for the Substack. Of course, people over the $8 tier on my Patreon uh, automatically get privilege to the Substack and all the articles. If you haven't received an email about that yet and you would like to, please uh, send me a message on Patreon. But everybody above the $8 tier on Patreon should have gotten an email from me uh, assigning you a membership to my Substack. So uh, that being said, we can't do this show without your support. I considered doing three episodes a week. I think we might have to go back to two episodes a week. But what I want to do instead is do three. I mean, I don't, I haven't really thought this completely through, so I don't know how this is going to work, but I think it could work if I do Monday's episode on Friday for the Patreon people. So uh, you'll get three episodes a week if you're on the Patreon. And if you're not on the Patreon, well, you have to wait. And sometimes the uh, occasional ad must be heard. So deal with that or support the show. I think you should support the show. Uh, If you're a friend of mine, if you're a listener of this podcast, you're a friend of mine. And uh, I know you'd like to help me out, help keep this podcast going, help me pay my bills, uh, electric bill. I'm trying to save up for another car so we can get on the road and do more Uh, trips like the one I took to Rose Valley. Uh, Steven Snyder invited me and I took the train down. It was a really great time, but uh, I prefer to be able to drive myself, you know, instead of relying on public transportation. So until then, I will make do, but uh, all the more reason for you to support the show, buy a copy of the scene editions one or two can even pick up uh, my thoughts on bibliomancy you can support my friend juan on his patreon whatever you want help us out rockfin patreon substack there's so many options you can even just pick up a a t-shirt wear the t-shirt around town we got t-shirts go into the merch link it's in the description of this episode wear a t-shirt around town Uh, if you leave us a five-star rating and a review 
I will send you a sticker. All you got to do is message me uh, with proof. You just hit me up uh, at mfticpodcast at gmail.com and say, hey, I left a review. This is my name. Please send me a, uh, a sticker. And make sure you have your uh, address in there, of course, but also uh, have your Apple iTunes name so I can make sure that you actually did um, <clears throat> leave a rating and review. And don't fake it. You could easily just go look at the rating and reviews and pretend to be someone and get a free sticker. But uh, come on, leave us a five-star rating and review. And if you can't do it on Apple, you could try and leave one on Podcast Addict. That's an app that I use. And I'm sure there's other apps that you could listen to podcasts and leave ratings and reviews. Although we don't uh, see them, it does help us grow the show and all that good stuff. So anyways, thank you friends for tuning in. I really appreciate all of you who listen to this show each week. And I hope you immerse yourself into the moment wherever you are in the now. Cells out of service can't reach me on the circuit. Uh, I'm peeking through the curtain. Nothing is for certain, but I feel it like a purpose. Wait, I'm peeking through the curtain. Hardly feeling like a person, but the vibes are perfect. Uh, I'm peeking through the curtain. Nothing is for certain, but I feel it like a purpose. Wait, my third eye's open and my chakras flowing. All seven channels in my spirit's flowing. Knowledge feeling deeper than the ocean It's the eightfold path in the sacred lotus uh, I'm peeking, flipping through Akashic records My ego's decomposing like a leper I'm Edgar Casey going some levitation So with zero hesitation as I jump into the spaceship I'm weary from faking like an earthling While skyfish dip and dive above the earth circling I'm spiraling, sacred geometry Studying my old selves like it's anthropology Honestly, feeling like life's a comedy As big a game as a paper-run economy I've been playing safe, but safest for the weak or hard Wait, I'm peeking, tearing everything apart Wait, I'm peeking through the curtain Cells out of service can't reach me on the circuit uh, I'm peeking through the curtain Nothing is for certain, but I feel it like a purpose Wait Hardly feeling like a person, but the vibes are perfect. Uh, I'm peeking through the curtain. Nothing is for certain, but I feel it like a purpose. Wait, I'm beta testing old theta frequencies. I lay to rest the ego and the frequent themes that keep me seeing life inside a box. Small minds kick rocks, Pandora less talk. Uh, I might need a suture for this rift in space. I might stay and see how Lucifer's fruit tastes. Hungry for knowledge and hungry for infinite And every time I'm peeking I can see it for an instant I'm peeking through the curtain at the crowd Sheeps in their seats and the wolves on the prowl Zeitgeist, spirit form walking through the aisles Consumerism living in their vacant smiles uh, Now I'm peeking through the curtain at the sky I ain't even gotta try, gaining wisdom on the fly I'm touching base with things I can't explain Gods without names on a different plane Wait Cells out of service can't reach me on the circuit. Uh, I'm peeking through the curtain. Nothing is for certain, but I feel it like a purpose. Wait, I'm peeking through the curtain. Hardly feeling like a person, but the vibes are perfect. 
nothing is for certain But I feel it like a purpose Wait, I'm peeking through the curtain Cells out of service can't reach me on the circuit uh, I'm peeking through the curtain Nothing is for certain but I feel it like a purpose Wait, I'm peeking through the curtain Hardly feeling like a person but the vibes are perfect Nothing is for certain, but I feel it like a purpose. Wait, 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 wait.